I'm going in for surgery this week. Second time I've ever been put under. There's a creepiness in going under, even for something routine. It shouldn't be any different than going to sleep. Yet I still wonder, what if it's not me that comes out the other side? What if, in that dreamless slumber, the true me embraces the void? This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 47 of Embrace the Void where you can never really tell if we're laughing or crying. I'm your host, Aaron, and with me as always is my good buddy, GW. How you doing? Uh, laughing and crying simultaneously? Why not both? Yeah. Everybody in the world, hashtag the why not both gif. <laughs> Same time, I imagine. Uh, great. So today we've got another fun interview with one of the members of the Bucks Rock diaspora, friends of ours from... Our, our various artistic connections. Um, he is a uh, famous stand-up comedian who's out there doing the shows and things. So we're going to chat about comedy and philosophy and a variety of fun topics. So I guess let's uh, hop on over. What's Chang doing? He's getting a refill on his void. This week's guest is a longtime friend and fellow Bucks Rock diaspora member. He's a stand-up comedian, which is why he's getting this comedian-style intro. He's been featured on Conan and has a stand-up special on Amazon called Small Dork and Handsome. Mike Kaplan, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello to the void. Thank you. How you doing, man? Uh, I'm feeling good. I have a, a busy day today. This is actually my third pod and or radio situation today. Oh, man, you're just getting out there, huh? Yeah, this is, I don't know if it's something, you know how they say like Mercury and retrograde or a full moon. So if you're the the sort that knows about uh, astrological affairs, I don't know if there's one that is associated with lots of podcasts happening in one day, but <laughs> that, that must be going on right now, I imagine. Right. The recordus is in retrograde. Along yes. The lines. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, so that... And you've got a podcast of yourself that's been going on for a while now, which I didn't include in your intro. What is the name of that one again? Oh, that's fine. In fact, uh, my my podcast that I am doing every week is called Broccoli and Ice Cream, <laughs> and it's new newish. Uh, but I did have a podcast for about five years and like hundreds of episodes before that, and I've re you know restarted. Mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm a different set of molecules. <laughs> There's a different focus i'm using different equipment broccoli and ice cream is the name how has it been for you as a, a performer like the with the rise of these alternative medias do you feel like it's been a net positive i think that i mean ultimately everything i think is a net neutral <laughs> like you start out not existing and then you exist and then you end up not existing or you start out always existing and you always do and you know, if you 
if you get something good, then it goes away. If you if something bad happens, then it goes away, or eventually life goes away. But to get, I guess, more focused in on the specific <laughs> question that you asked, uh, I do think that having more outlets and uh, avenues for people to express whatever kind of art or entertainment, comedy, music, I like... Like, in comedy specifically, the 80s was sort of like the boom and the way to success was pretty universally seen as get your five clean minutes to try and do on The Tonight Show. Hopefully, Johnny Carson likes you, gives you a thumbs up, or uh, calls you over to the couch, and then your career can be made, you know, the next day, literally an overnight success. Uh, Or, you know, you're working Vegas and Atlantic City and on the road and wherever was available then and now. And I think, you know, maybe tens of millions of people would watch that because it was the only, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. there were other shows, but does I don't know who Johnny Carson's competitors were because he really didn't have any. Because there was like three channels on TV. Oh, yeah. And now those, you know, tens of millions of people are all some of them. If they're watching late night shows, if they're even watching TV, you know, it's only a few million here, several million here. And then there's people with podcasts and web series and, you know, viral videos and different, like all different kinds of things. And probably by the time people are listening to this, you know, thousands of years from now, they're like, wow, they didn't even mention, you know, stream into the brain directly, singularity machine. Um, But, you know, there's just new, newer technology offering new, you know, like I have friends who are doing like streaming app content now, you know, Mm -hmm. and I, I do think that this the way that in the past it was, you know, obviously numerically more difficult to get on Carson. Now it is easier to get on a late night show because there are more of them. Of course, it might, it means that potentially that one, you know, the first time I've been on Conan a number of times and uh, it didn't, it certainly doesn't have the same uh, effect objectively as it could have when it was the only, when if it was Carson, when it was the only thing, but also, I might not have gotten on any of them at that point. So I like getting to do, you know, I like that this sort of does, I think, like is a rising tide that lifts all ships, uh, maybe not as high as like the the one ship was before, but now there's just so many, like it's actually, I think in a way better because uh, in the 80s and 90s, let's say, uh, you had, like it. I think the content had to be broader Mm -hmm. and had to try to reach more people if you know a show could get canceled if it had fewer than you know some i don't know 20 million 15 million 30 like there were shows getting like 30 40 50 million viewers a week now uh like shows you know a show like community never would have existed 20 years ago because uh it didn't get enough viewers because it was weirder it was more niche and so now because everything is weirder and more niche like you can (laughs) carve your own weird niche yeah we don't know anything about that here wait a minute (laughs) um cool yeah i i tend to agree i think that it seems like especially for small small content producers like ourselves and and medium to large content producers like yourselves who are still sort of working within these individual artistic careers the ability the increased access to if nothing else the increased access to the people who are consuming your art seems like a net gain there's a lot more dialogue it seems like that can be had oh yeah i mean i think uh i that is a bonus just of i feel like the internet itself of and lots of things are double-edged swords where 
of course, you can become connected to, you know, if you live in an isolated area and you have, you know, if you live in a town that's, let's say, not very diverse in any way, you know, let's racially or class-wise or, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking of specific, like, different, you know, like, lifestyle uh, like, you know, if you are into any specific thing and it's not the thing that, quote, everyone is into or uh, you, you basically, you know, the Internet can be like a lifesaver, literally sometimes for people to let people know that there are people who share your interests, who are, you know, not just like the people in your immediate surroundings, if you're not like the people in your immediate surroundings. So it can really connect people. And then, of course, it can also <laughs> Uh, lead to cyberbullying and, you know, the rise of... Now, the great thing is that everyone has it, and the bad thing is that everyone has it. Right. Yeah, so what you're saying is you're a lot like ISIS this way. You and... I don't know if that's... I feel like like that was the comparison that was being drawn here. Doing the math? Yeah. (laughs) So, as some folks might have noticed along the way there, you have a a penchant for philosophical comedy, uh, because you have a philosophy background, I think, right? I did study philosophy in college. Right. And you, you do a great shtick about that, right? The, the Or did you? Or do I? Good stuff. Thank you. Um, did you... What made the, the transition for you? Or was it a super obvious transition from just one kind of bullshit artist to another kind of bullshit artist? Uh, I mean, I never thought that I would... Become, you know, use my philosophy degree to go work at Philosophy Incorporated, you know, like, uh, what's the entry level? <laughs> so I, I don't know, you know, like, obviously, mm-hmm. I, I think that's kind of, again, the, the double-edged, you know, the positive side of that, the sword of the philosophy degree is uh, there's nobody who's like, hey, you're wasting your philosophy degree. Uh, you aren't, you, you didn't become a, prof- I mean, I wonder what the numbers are of how many people get philosophy degrees versus how many jobs have, you know, explicitly philosophy in the label. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, my, my desire was to be a musician initially. Like that was, I, so I, I took philosophy because I enjoyed it. Like, I don't know if going back, if I could, if I could advise myself to study, you know, to, if I was like, you know, okay, now that you know, you're going to be a comedian or you, you'll want to be a comedian, which you won't know or learn without all of these steps to get you there. But if I could know that that was what I would want to do, would I tell myself to like not even go to college, to not spend the money? Like I had some scholarships, but it still certainly was expensive. Uh, and you can read those, you know, you're allowed to, I feel like this is what goodwill hunting, right. like you can, you can read the books. Uh, and you can now, especially today, you can, you know, get teachings from the internet, from, you know, I like I love Ram Dass's podcast and like you know I'm sure there's so many teachers out there whose work you can get and you don't you don't get the yeah the physical piece of paper uh but that was that was never I mean I guess that was like my family's goal and so I adopted it and I'm like oh yeah school you get you prove that you are good with school and then you can get job but then I was like but job I want is in arts so I kept going to school, so I got my master's degree in linguistics, partially because I love linguistics uh, and wanted to study it more, and partially because I just wanted to give myself more time to, at the time I thought of it as, maybe I'll give myself more time to, quote, get discovered with my music. Um, And I lived in Boston as a resident assistant at Boston University, 
And so I had pretty, like, you know, a decent free housing situation. Uh, and when, when did you go to school there? Uh, I went, so I graduated undergrad in 2000. So I went to BU between like 2000 and 2008 or nine. Uh, I, I went to grad school there. So I was there from huh. fall of 2007 to 2010. Well, then we might have walked near each other. I <laughs> have almost coexisted. Uh, yeah. So it was, I mean, I feel like philosophy, I, I studied, I majored in philosophy and psychology in undergrad, and then I got my master's in linguistics. And I feel like they're all basically, you know, everything is connected, but it's like thinking mm -hmm. and feeling and talking and communicating, you know, uh, assessing and investigating yourself and expressing these things and, you know, to other people, connecting with other people. Are there other people? Is there a self? Uh, and I feel like that is also, you know, the job or at least in part uh, what happens in comedy, uh, you know, self-assessment, self-analysis and sharing of those things, investigating the potentially objective or at least subjective or some kind of truths of the universe and the mind and the self and society. So I don't know that I ever did change, but also I'm changing all the time. So, yeah, I guess this one of my one of my qu uh, questions about all of this is, you know, we do comedy on the show. I we, we all love comedy. Uh, we do philosophy on the show. We all love philosophy. Is there a tension between comedy and philosophy? Um, this is something that I think you and I have discussed a little bit before. This, this, you know, wondering like philosophy is about trying to say something very precisely, and comedy is very often about exaggerating. And so, how do you kind of square that circle? I don't think comedy is about <laughs> exaggerating at all. <laughs> Uh, I tried to back off from the microphone to not hurt anybody <laughs> yeah. with my hilarious comedy bit. GW, um, GW appreciates it. Uh, I, I heavily compress our stuff, so it <laughs> oh, doesn't great. even matter. Oh, great. I'll yell even louder and closer <laughs> next time. I'll yell even... I can't do it. But uh, I think that... here to I'll, I'll try to answer the question, but to start with, I'll say, I don't even think comedy has to be comedy to be comedy. Like, examples include Carlin. George Carlin, I think, is, you know, one of the foremost, certainly one of the most influential and most often named as, like, people's, if not favorite, but, like, you know, one of the, you know, the Mount Rushmore of comedy, yeah. uh, just four George Carlin heads. And uh, I don't know, like, why, why do we do four of him? I don't know. We'll, we'll make it somebody else later. But... Uh, He's a guy who I remember from watching his specials, sometimes like I feel like the bits would there would be like some bits that didn't get as much laughter and maybe weren't even intended to get as much laughter. Some of them were like almost poetry more or like a spoken word kind of rant much, you know, maybe if you if there is a dichotomy of comedy and philosophy, which I think there certainly is and can be an overlap and needn't be tension, though I understand the question. Uh, I think that, you know, George Carlin was at, you could be like, if it's important to categorize, hey, at this moment, he's not getting a laugh for a minute. So let's say he's a philosopher here. And then when he gets a laugh, then he's a comedian. But, you know, also he is, he's both all the time. Or if he wants to be, I don't want to put words in his dead mouth, but uh, <laughs> one of my favorite DJs, dead mouth. And 
I think that that joke makes sense. The yeah, point no, that, is, that scans. <laughs> thank you. Um, so I, I do think uh, for me, and I, I can't speak, I, uh, not only can I not speak for Carlin, I can't speak for, um, I can hardly speak for myself, but I can't speak for anybody except myself and maybe not even myself. But my, my goal in comedy sometimes, I do think here's another, uh, I feel like there are some comedians who do like, let's say political comedy, uh, or, you know, sort of societal, uh, like social analysis and responding to things that are happening in the world. Sometimes saying a thing that is 100% like accurate and true because of how far society has veered from what is reasonable on a particular issue, saying the truth can be like the funniest thing. Like, uh, the, many of the examples I have for this are of Louis CK, who I believe, you know, who needs like an asterisk next right. to his name. I was going to go with the, with the onion, I think was the, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Some, yeah. The onion. Uh, great. I love it. Uh, there was an example, I think when Schwarzenegger was elected governor of California, their headline was just like Arnold Schwarzenegger elected leader of world's fifth largest economy. Yeah. <laughs> And that's real and that like a hundred percent the truth and also comedy. There's Mm -hmm. in the, in the New Yorker, uh, you know, the cartoons, I, now this is something that I don't have the, the source for, but I remember when I was, uh, deciding what to do for my thesis, uh, in grad school, I believe my instructor, my, one of my advisors told me that there was a study that assessed, that analyzed and categorized all the, like, you know, hundreds of New Yorker cartoons, let's say. Not all, but hundreds, maybe more. And they they fit on this axis of, like, the two variables were, is the picture absurd or normal? And is the caption absurd or normal? And the vast majority of them would either be an, an invert, one of the inverses. It would either mm-hmm. be a normal picture with a weird caption or a weird picture with a normal caption. Sometimes they would have normal picture with normal caption and that would be like a social like commentary more than like an example of, I think (laughs) weird picture with normal caption is one I love by Bruce Eric Kaplan. Like God is on his throne and he's talking to an angel with a clipboard and the caption is now CC the devil on this (laughs) Uh, or, and CC the devil on this. And so I think it's, you know, like a normal world thing in a bizarre environment And so I think that that is where, like, tension is something that, you know, comedy itself plays with and, but also doesn't have to if it is, it can be, there's, uh, the, the answer keeps moving because I think that, I mean, I think that comedy and philosophy go very nicely together, but I guess, I guess let me, before I answer your question. (laughs) Eventually. uh, No worries. What's the, what's the definition of philosophy? is there or what what is philosophy in this because i mean i can right i can hardly say what comedy is but i mean the point i guess the point is that you said the version of it that you're referring to is like sort of the the rigorous you know wanting to define you know terms definitions categories so that you can understand you know maybe the truth of what you're talking about and you know aligning reality with the language you know as much as you can obviously like the word will never be the thing the finger pointing will never be 
the moon, but you know, we're in, in these physical seeming incarnations, we're doing our best. We're like, okay, so yes, we, we can never be a hundred percent, uh, accurate and we can never, you know, we can never, you know, because of the Mm -hmm. whatever observer effect and Heisenberg uncertainty principle and Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Like there's never a way that we're in the system. So we can't objectively uh, assess and judge and create a perfect version. We can't create a perfect map of the system in the system because the map would be in the system and then it'll go, you know, turtles all the way down. Right. So philosophy itself uh, can never be as 100%, you know, accurate on the nose as one might want it to be. And uh, that's funny. So that's comedy. That's right. That's right. Yes, I do think that philosophy makes for a rich source of comedy because of the, all of the, the sort of uh, depressing endpoints that can be turned into funny things. Um, oh, yeah. And if you just do it backwards, then it's uh, it's happier. Right. So comedy philosophy backwards. Yeah. So speaking of, I guess, comedy and, and dark things and politics, do you feel like your comedy has changed over the past few years as the world has sort of taken on a gloomier aspect? Uh, you know, I think that the answer is in part. Yes. Yes. My comedy has definitely changed. And yes, there have been obviously some uh, dark corners of the world which were like oh are these the whole world is it the light that was in the corner is the oh is it just dark i do think uh that my i was changing i i have been changing growing and you know as a human being and as a comedian uh through certain experiences of my own uh without that i'm not necessarily just explicitly responding to you know the election of 2016 uh, which, you know, wasn't the source of all problems before there's, mm-hmm. you know, I, we like to think that I, I mean, I guess I don't want to speak for everybody that I like to think that the world is on a, you know, a positive trajectory, uh, you know, progressing, uh, towards, I guess itself becoming the more ideal, you know, compassionate, kind, loving version of anything. And, you know, I think there is objectively like less, fighting i mean looking at all the fighting that there is but you know hundreds of years thousands of years ago uh so yeah i i'm not an expert but i've read things by people that i think are experts and i think i know enough to say that i don't know what i'm talking about (laughs) but uh yeah i definitely when i started doing comedy i would say that i wasn't I would probably, if you were like, are you political? I would say, I don't think so. I mean, I had some jokes about uh, about homophobia and racism and sexism, uh, which were things that were not my favorites. Uh, I think a joke, like, you know, I talk about homophobia and veganism, you know, things I love. And uh, I would talk about, you know, being a vegetarian, being a vegan. And these are things that, you know, I'm... Some people, I think, would say it's the job of the comedian to, you know, be descriptive rather than prescriptive, um, and maybe the job of the artist or maybe the human. I don't know. Uh, certainly, in my linguistic studies, that was the the idea was, you know, you you don't tell people how to talk. You're looking at how people actually do talk because they're people are talking the way that they do without even, you know, there are people who don't have 
uh, who don't learn how to speak from in like school or a teacher. You just listen to people and your brain does it. And that's sort of, I think, you know, a thing that doesn't only apply to linguistics, but uh, I think the, you know, the Buddhist readings that I've done also sort of talk about, you know, starting from where you are, accepting where you are, being grateful for where you are, including being grateful for your suffering, which doesn't mean you have to keep, you know, suffering in the exact same ways that you have always suffered. And in fact, it's probably ideal to, you know, face a direction where you're like, oh, imagine, you know, like living the life the way that you want to hopefully will help there be less suffering of that kind, less unnecessary suffering for yourself, for other conscious beings who can uh, process and feel pleasure and pain. And so I think, you know, sort of the path that I've been on, again, as a human and a comedian has been like, in the beginning, I think the, the main variable that affected me not being as political or as, you know, responsive to the world in that way uh, as I could have been and or as I am becoming is just uh, both like sort of confidence and competence. Like I, you know, I think there's that scale of, you know, that you're first unconsciously incompetent. Like I thought I was good, but I was not right. And then I was consciously incompetent. I'm like, oh, I learned that I wasn't Mm -hmm. good. That's better. And then eventually, you know, hopefully you reach uh, conscious competence uh, where I think I have some measure of that, but also I don't know, who knows? So maybe I'm still at the other place. Uh, And then eventually unconscious uh, competence where it's just like, that's you, you've done it. You, you are it. Like you are just the river flowing down uh, the mountain. You're the stream, probably. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rivers, I don't think are on mountains, but uh, why not? I'm a river flowing down a mountain. And uh, hey, somebody get that river out of here. It is flooding the mountain. Yeah, it's got to be a stream. So in the beginning, I would say I was just learning how to be a comedian, sort of just learning, not explicitly like this is how you tell a joke, but you you figure out who you are on stage, who you want to be, like the kinds of things that work. And I definitely like just wrote down everything and thought of everything and had like thousands of ideas and most of them didn't work. Uh, not necessarily because they were bad ideas, but because I wasn't yet, you know, sort of as much in control of my instrument as I would become. And I was just like, well, this joke seems to work and this joke seems to work. And they might not be about the most important things. Sometimes they would be. Sometimes they would be personal things. Sometimes they would be about movies. Sometimes they would be about social justice issues that I cared about. But I didn't feel like I had control because I didn't have as much control. But eventually I would learn, oh, I at least have a little control. I mean, I can... I can decide to follow this idea that I want to follow more. I don't have to just do this other dumb thing that I thought because it made people laugh once. I can, and that's also fine. So I think part of my addressing, you know, the world in a in a different kind of philosophical, possibly political, uh, hopefully not, you know, prescriptivist way, but you know, just I'm trying to become better at being myself, being a comedian, being a human, being a caring, kind person, being a thoughtful person, being an open, listening person, you know, sort of just continuing to take things in and learn and grow. And so I've been doing that. And that I think has, you know, changed, I have changed as a person and I've changed as a comedian. And then specifically, you know, after the election, uh, 
in 2016, I I was more affected by that than I am about a lot of, you know, sort of world happenings. I think it had it. It's a it's kind of, I think uh, don't argue with me. I think it's a major thing. And it, you know, sort of revealed, you know, it wasn't like all the bad started then, but it like, oh, it revealed that there are there, there are there is this suffering going mm-hmm. on of of all kinds. And now maybe more. And now maybe, you know, I maybe I wasn't doing everything that I could. Maybe I wasn't saying everything that I could or researching everything that I could or spending my money and my time in all the ways that I wanted to. Uh, and would have been potentially good and helpful to for, you know, different uh, disenfranchised, marginalized communities uh, who now I was like, oh, no, this is like because my life hasn't uh, certainly been put in as much risk as the as people who are, you know, Muslim or refugees or uh, in the LGBTQ community. And I'm like, wow, there's there's lots uh, going on and it's important to, uh, it, it's probably been important for me to be aware. There's a thing I, I heard, I don't know whose quote this is, but it's like the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. And the second best time is now. So I'm, I'm doing my best to plant more trees, Mm -hmm. uh, now when it could, you know, I didn't, I didn't know about all the trees that I could have been planting decades ago but you know i'm i'm working on it and so some of my comedy is reflecting that yes uh, do you feel like you've been getting good reactions as you've been bringing more of that mindfulness kind of work into the into the stand up comedy uh yeah i do i think that um i mean even all along like i've been you know when I, i've been talking about veganism for most of my i've been vegan for most of the time that i've been a comedian uh, and there have been people who have responded positively to the the jokes and the ideas uh, and the way that I've been presenting them. Uh, like, even if people aren't becoming vegan and vegetarian themselves, which everybody isn't, uh, they, people have been appreciative of the viewpoint that I'm expressing. And then there have been a number of people who have, like, been like, hey, this this has made me think positively about, you know, changing my life in this way and so that that is that's been a thing that happens once in a while similarly when i talk about polyamory or open relationships and my experience uh in along this path there have been people who have told me like i listened to what you said and it made sense to me and uh and i've i've changed my life in this way and so there's always you know it's not every day it's not all the time but it is certainly valuable to know that, you know, the things that I'm saying on podcasts and in my comedy on albums and specials or at live shows, people are taking it in and are responding. And the the show that I'm doing now that is, you know, that will be the next album or special that I record, which is going to be called All Killing Aside, <laughs> is uh, one that I'm taking to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this summer. And uh, so I've been you know, workshopping it and building it and, you know, doing everything I can with it for the past several years, getting it in the shape that it's in. And some of the main messages of it are about, you know, kindness and positivity and, you know, love and spirituality in a way that I haven't talked about before because I've had more spiritual experiences in the past few years than I have. I would, it's weird to say I've had more in the past few years than I have the rest of my life, but I would say I've been having 
the experiences my whole life, but I now have a new perspective and framework for uh, assessing and and describing, you know, the experiences that have been happening and are happening and, you know, are present in potentially any moment. And so I do think, I mean, the way that I see other people, like if I'm watching, uh, if I watch somebody's comedy or I listen to, you know, a, a spiritual teacher speak or, you know, a musician uh, playing a particular song, or if I look at certain lyrics, like sometimes now the, there'll be like a high resonance with a particular idea or expression of an idea. And I'm like, oh, wow. Like, and it's sort of like a, a game recognized game thing, or like a, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the phrase, the satsang or sangha. No. It's, as I understand it, it's sort of rep one of them or both of them sort of talk about this like-minded community of seekers. Like you're like, oh, I see that you are on this path and I am on this path. And so we have potentially something in common. And, you know, even if we don't know each other, like, you know, geographically, chronologically, we've just now sort of, you know, connected in this way, but I, I sort of recognize and see. And so I do feel like there are people who have been, you know, seeing my comedy, listening to my comedy, watching me coming, and they'll come up to me after shows sometimes or send me emails uh, about, uh, I guess, having that experience themselves, that the things that I'm saying are uh, resonating in a positive way. Even like on Twitter every morning and every night for the past few months, I've been just uh, putting out a, a positive sort of meditative a meditative affirmation kind of thing that i was sort of inspired by uh like lynn manuel miranda uh who does that i say not every day but lots of days and another a playwright i like named john patrick shanley and i would see these guys like put that put out these just sort of beautiful like not comedic just more philosophical uh m motivating meditative sort of inspiring supportive calming messages of like good night and good morning and like they make me feel good and so why don't i do what i can to do my version of that and so i'll i'll put them into the world and there have been a lot of people responding positively to those like that you know bless you uh again i bless you <laughs> i bless everyone as, as much as i can i do what i can um and it's really nice to you know there, there's kind of, it's this sort of also goes back to the idea, the question you were asking about, you know, comedy versus philosophy and how sometimes, you know, I'll have, there might be a stretch of my comedy where it will, the goal is to always be, you know, be funny and have a punchline uh, and say, but, and also say something like, and talk about things that are either important to me or personal to me or philosophical ideas that I want to express or real life stories that I want to tell and also being funny. And these all, you know, at any moment I'm doing something that I think is important and something that I think is funny and meaningful. And if there's a moment where somebody's like, Hey, you went for a long time without a joke. You're not a, com that's <laughs> not comedy. I'm like, well then, you know, you don't have to be here. You don't have to listen. Uh, I'm, I'm allowed to do literally whatever I want. If I'm, you know, but you said you were a comedian. I actually, did I say that? I probably did. But also, you know, a comedian doesn't have to be just joke, 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 jo
his his stuff is sort of similar where he goes on these like long stories and doesn't quote unquote tell a joke for quite some time. Oh yeah, I mean Mike is uh, he has made uh brilliant albums full of jokes and then the thing that he mainly does now is these one person shows and that you know it's not like it's funny it's not a trick to be like oh he's not saying it's not comedy and i also would say it is comedy and uh some of some of the best comedy isn't quote jokes um because comedy doesn't equal jokes and jokes can be bad so jokes don't necessarily equal comedy i mean if you want to i i used to have a joke about how comedy is the only art form that has to be good to be recognized even as the art form like if you see a movie and it's bad, you're not like, was that even a movie? Mm-hmm. Uh, but with comedy, sometimes if it's not recognizable to, you know, it's funny because for for some people, like it's everything is not, I don't want to say everything is subjective, but like the way that I think about it is, you know, not every comedian is for every audience, not every audience is for every comedian. And uh, like not every food, like you could have the greatest chef in the world cook a dish that you don't like because you don't like the flavor of the food. It doesn't mean that's a bad chef. It means uh, you don't like that food. Um, and but also there could be some things that you're like, is this this isn't food, right? This cinder block isn't food. That airplane isn't food. But then there's that guy who broke the Guinness World Record for eating an airplane, I think, you know, he mm. ate it, I think over the course of two years and like, yeah, is if you're eating it, is it food? Like what's the definition of food? But uh, just to try and make sure I don't forget what I was saying, which is, would be fine if I did, I think, uh, because who cares? But uh, maybe you and me and people listening, uh, the, the notes that I put out uh, each morning and night, sometimes because I'm, you know, quote, and not quote, a comedian, but because I'm officially a comedian, I'm a professional comedian, people will get recommended, you know, to look at my feed, or they'll see certain tweets. And if they see a tweet, that's not a joke. Like sometimes there was this is this is funny to me, because now this is a joke based on a thing that's not a joke. Mm -hmm. But a guy was like, Hey, I don't like this. What? This isn't comedy. This guy's supposed to be a comedian. This is, this is hacky and unoriginal. This isn't funny. I'm like, Oh yeah. I wasn't trying to convince people that I came up with the original joke. Good night. Uh, (sighs) but yeah, there's a lot of comedians that have that joke. They say it at the very end of their act, but, uh, I'm going to be the only good morning comedian. (laughs) So, uh, let's see what else. Um, I was curious your thoughts as a comedian on um, the the discussion, the the ongoing. I know this is never ends as a discussion amongst comedians, but like censorship and uh, have things become too PC. Um, do you feel like you have to restrict your jokes in any way? Uh, do you feel like are you familiar with a guy who who got in trouble for a video of teaching his dog to do a Nazi salute in response to words uh, in the response to the phrase gas the Jews. And I, I've only, I don't know that person personally though. It's I've actually, since I I think he's from the UK Mm -hmm. uh, and because I'm going to the Edinburgh fringe fest, uh, I'm doing some press in advance of that. And they actually just asked me like, you know, one of the 
one of the interviewers asked me if I thought that this person, if this guy who was fined 800 pounds or something for that, they asked, do I think that he did something criminal? And I honestly, I mean, obviously ethics and legality don't necessarily align completely. And also the legality of that country, like, I don't know what the rules are. Like not everywhere even has quote freedom of speech, you know, Mm -hmm. like I know people, comedians have gotten in trouble in Canada because they have said, let's say a mean thing to an audience member. Uh, And maybe not just a mean thing, maybe a thing that was judged to be hate speech. And the question of what is hate speech is, you know, I think that there's a spectrum uh, of all these kinds of things. And I'm certainly not uh, the ultimate arbiter of it. But uh, I did say, and here's what I said about the guy who taught his dog to do a Heil paw motion, is I think the dog is probably innocent. (laughs) But I can't, I mean, I really don't know. Uh, I mean, because I think the, here, the two, if there are two sides of the thing, like one side is if you are not intending harm, then, you know, a joke is a joke. Uh, I mean, and certainly that guy is allowed to teach that dog to do whatever he wants in private, but then also by publicizing it, it does, you know, by making it available to the public, like you are having an impact on the world. And I'm not saying that that guy is certainly not responsible uh, for all. I don't know if that, I don't know if that is emboldening, embold, is that it? emboldening Nazis? Embiggening. Uh, but embiggening, yeah. Uh, I really don't know. I mean, I will say, to answer the question more in general and also in a specific way, uh, there are, there's always, there's, there are a bunch of comedians who, uh, are on the side of like the, the argument that says, uh, things are getting too PC. You can hardly say anything anymore. And, you know, George Carlin and Lenny Bruce literally went to jail for things that they said. And that's almost uh, unheard of since then, Mm -hmm. at least in this country. Um, and so I think that the people who are there, there's a comedian I love named Paul F. Tompkins, who I'm going to sort of bastardize his argument, uh, that when he's like, people are basically saying like, why can't I say things the way that I always said things in the past? And he's like, you sound like a dinosaur. Like if (laughs) like society is changing, if you're not changing, then that you're the, like, it's not to say that you have, like, here's the the other thing. There's a comedian I love named Nick Vatterot. And he, I, I hope that there's enough information in what I'm about to say that makes this seem as funny uh, to me, to you as it does to me. But he, he tweeted something once, something like, I think my two favorite Seinfeld quotes are, number one, the audience is always right. And number two, these college kids are getting too PC. Right. Uh, and because society is changing and it's not to say that every person who, you know, take like if somebody is upset about, you know, hearing a specific thing, like I think there's a difference between, you know, not liking something and actually having a legit traumatic response to something. Like I think that trigger warnings are valuable there's another comedian I love named Keith Lowell Jensen, who has a book coming out that I got to read an advanced copy of. And it starts with a blank page that just says trigger warning, warning. And then the next page is a trigger warning where he talks about people, you know, 
ostensibly his fans yelling at him for being so like, I don't know, weak or soft or whatever it is. He's like, why do you have to have trigger warnings? Like, what do you, why don't you just say what you want to say? And Keith makes the point that I think that by having a trigger warning, it does allow me to say what I want to say. And it also allows people that I know that have been through traumatic experiences like war or sexual assault to skip over certain parts of what I want to say if they don't want to read that specific information. He's like, I'm doing what I want and I want to give a trigger warning. And if you are traumatized by my trigger warning, that's why I'll put a trigger warning warning for you. So, uh, so I think that's great. And so I think that most of the people, you know, who are complaining about political correctness are probably older straight white men, like probably older cisgender straight white men. Uh, you know, the people who had all the power and still have most of the power, but they're like, um, I like, so here's the thing about, uh, my friend Zach Sherwin, also a wonderful comedian, mm-hmm. uh, shared with me he has a a linguistics professor friend who uh, i'm sorry i don't have her name but she shared with him and he shared with me something about political correctness which is nobody nobody who is for it really is saying like it's good to be politically correct it's sort of that's actually language that uh, people who are anti it are using to try and make it seem like a specific thing when in fact most people are just saying like Hey, will you use the name that I want to use? Will you use the the language? You know, will you? I'm. I, this is my identity. Will you respect it? Will you call me? You know, and so there, the people who are anti political correctness are sort of framing it as, "Hey, I'm being oppressed here. Stop oppressing me by telling me what I can and can't say." When in fact, the real thing that's happening is they're like, hey, I want to keep oppressing the people that I've been oppressing by saying what I want to say. Right. And so that's my general assessment of it is like, I know that I'm not uh, flawless. I'm not a perfect person. There's, you know, no such thing except for maybe a dead person, maybe like a person who was born and then died immediately. Just the only perfect person is a dead baby. Uh, and that's why people love Jesus so much. Not sure. I know he got to grow up, but he's also still a baby somehow too. Time is an illusion. But uh, I think, you know, I it's sort of like there's this these varying like dichotomies uh, of, you know, when you start out doing comedy, like for me, I was like overly confident. And I sometimes you need that. You like to keep even doing it. Because if you knew how bad you were, you might not do it. You need, but you also eventually need some measure of self-awareness. Like, so I think you need a com- like a combo, some sort of equilibrium of delusional self-confidence and painful self-awareness. And one of them keeps you going and then helps improve so that eventually you might always think you're not the best, but you will keep getting better. And also you may think, you know, in the beginning, I think I thought I was the best much before I actually was as good as I would become. And even still, you know, I'm hopefully always along mm-hmm. a positively improving uh, progression of a path, uh, which with respect to, you know, I think there's so many other comedians who have said such great things like Todd Glass, another wonderful comedian who uh, he, he says something like, and he's not the only one, but I like 
the way he, he simplifies is like, sure, you can say whatever you want, but like, what do you want to say? And why do you want to say it? And so I, th- I've definitely, you know, I think that there are comedians who say things that some people might object to that. I'd be like, that thing is great. Uh, because you know, it could be using certain language that, you know, you can't say on TV or you, your grandmother wouldn't like, but obviously like the language itself isn't the issue. The language is, you know, the, the tool, the mechanism, the, the thing that you're using to express the idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, or sometimes it is just like, oh, a fun game with language, but usually for the kind of comedy that we're talking about, um, I think that like the heart, you know, the, the message of, of the joke is more important than the actual words being used to express it. And you can still say pretty much anything that you want. And then also if you're saying things that people find objectionable, then they can say whatever they want. So it's freedom of speech goes in, I think every direction. Are there jokes that you used to make that you look back on and you're like, well, I, I don't probably shouldn't have made that or I, I wouldn't go, go in those places anymore? Uh, I wouldn't say that I shouldn't have made it, mm-hmm. but I will say that uh, there are... Here's a... Uh, the Kamau Bell, you know, W. Mm-hmm. Kamau Bell. Sure. He has a, a show on CNN now, United Shades of, of America, I believe. Uh, he He used to have a joke or maybe still has... Uh, something about, he's like, so he's a black man and he has a joke about whether he's like, my friend, my white friends sometimes ask me like, when is it ever okay for me to say the N word? And he says something like, yeah, whenever you're ready to deal with the consequences of saying the N word. And they're like, okay, so I shouldn't say it. And he's like, no, you can say it. And he's like, does anybody want to say it? (laughs) Uh, You know, and in that moment he is pretending to be threatening though obviously if somebody said it he would have a reaction i'm sure and not a lot of people will say it Mm -hmm. at that moment and so i think that there are things you know when you say something like in my for me in my comedy this isn't about the n-word specifically but there might be topics or language that i've used that at the time i was like yeah i think i'm trying this out i think this is a good idea i think this is you know an interesting point, a valuable thing to say. And then maybe based on the reaction, uh, you know, certainly if not enough people laugh at it or think it's funny, or if I don't, if I don't glean that it has gotten across in the way that I wanted to, I might be like, oh, then it isn't worth saying that thing. Like there's certain, certain topics, like I would never say I won't joke about this thing, uh, whether it's, you know, like, homophobia or like you know when people talk about like racial comedy it's like oh do you do racial comedy i'm like that could mean you're telling racist jokes and it could mean you're providing insightful uh you know analysis of the uh, state of race in society today and i think it just depends on whether you know mm-hmm. i might i might judge now that some of the things that i said like weren't worth you know the consequences because the consequences were like, maybe I got a cheap laugh or a silly laugh or an easy laugh. Uh, but by evoking, like, let's say the topic of sexual assault. Like, I think that there are definitely jokes that I've had, um, that I think objectively make sense as jokes, but 
you know, there might be people who, regardless of how objectively much sense the joke makes, might still have a reasonable emotional reaction to what I'm saying. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm more cognizant of that now. So like, I will be more thoughtful, especially when bringing up uh, topics where I think people could rightly have ideas about, you know, or not ideas about, but reactions that are out of my experience. Is that what you think you are? A hero? Saved the world, didn't I? Once. Talk to me after you've done it a couple more times. So our hero of the week this week comes to us from Cornell University. This was a student, uh, Leticia Chai, who, uh, when one of her male professors complained about the fact that she was wearing shorts that he deemed were too short because they distracted the male gaze away from the content of the presentation and onto her body. She responded by taking off her clothes down to her underwear and then finishing her presentation, which I think is probably one of the most amazing version responses to slut shaming or appearance shaming I've ever heard. That sounds great. Right. Speaking of, of, useful uh, uh uses of comedy that aren't uh exaggeration right it seems very on the if I, if I remember right if i remember right she's a college student right yeah i i just don't understand like is this like elementary school not that elementary school would be an appropriate place to do that either but it just doesn't like i i would have loved to have been in the room just to hear and see this professor's face as they said i'm sorry stop your presentation right now your shorts are too short like yeah yeah it sounds like it was a nasty situation that like a lot of the students stood up for her some of the students actually agreed with the professor and then uh you know she got in an argument with the professor and then she started doing a presentation again and stripped down to her bra and underwear uh and about half of the room joined her apparently Oh man, sounds like a really fun party. Uh, I think that's that's pretty that's incredibly uh, bold. That's you know. Oh yeah, really takes the idea of the best defense is a good offense uh, as far as you can go with it on that front. You know, uh, do you know that I've done comedy naked a number of times? Oh yeah, really? Yeah, the in Boston there was a a guy who ran this naked comedy show like once a month or so and sometimes we would do these like private events and uh, but it was mostly at this you know this improv sketch comedy theater uh and I feel like when I would talk to people about it or like you know the impression that people get is like cuz it would be I, I would say usually more dudes than women but there would be some women who did it and then maybe some dudes who would be like, oh man, that's gotta be, it's gonna be great. I'm gonna go like, I, but ultimately the the truth of what was happening is it's not a sexual situation. Mm-hmm. Like once you're looking at the person naked first, like what are you gonna, what comes next? Like, uh, it's not, you know, it's not a strip club. It's not a porno show. It's, it's not sexual at all. You know, like the, the human body can be sexual but at other times it's not sexual like i mean obviously the way that people perceive things but so i feel like just the 
even actually like having some clothing on and like is like more suggestive than even a naked body. So I, f- I feel like I really like the idea of this student like leaning into it and be like, oh, this is a problem. Well, then what about right. this? Like there was this uh, years a few years ago, an Iranian newspaper, I believe, put out like a malicious like joke competition saying like we're looking for the best holocaust jokes uh-huh. uh and then an israeli newspaper in response said oh yeah if you're gonna do that then we're gonna put out a call because we're gonna have a contest for the best holocaust jokes also <laughs> it's like you can't do you know right. you can't do this to me i'll do this to me and it's not even a thing and so like what it's sort of you know she's reductio ad absurdum, whatever that thing, you know, she's like, it is a ridiculous thing to say that, I mean, obviously it's not ridiculous that a man, a heterosexual man might enjoy looking at a woman. Uh, but it's certainly ridiculous to say that it's the woman's responsibility to wear certain things so that men behave themselves. Right. I had someone on Twitter this week, and I was arguing with them about uh, the Boy Scouts letting um, females into the scouting organization, and it eventually came down to him literally claiming men and women can't interact without it being sexual, which is incredibly absurd. And I think you made a good point that when you're you know watching someone do stand-up comedy for forty minutes naked, you quickly realize that not all nudity is sexual, and that. What we think of as intrinsically sexual quickly stops being sexual over that period of time. So I would imagine what might have happened in this uh, particular circumstance is that with half the room sitting there in their underwear and her doing her thing in her underwear, like eventually everybody just goes back to paying attention to the presentation. She did a good job. Yeah. So kudos. Well, uh, any final thoughts, G-Dubs? No, um... I, it, it makes you think of, of things that also are not sexual in terms of the human body. Like, you know, when, when I was an undergrad and I took a costume, costuming class, we were taught how to measure people. Mm-hmm. And the professor did a really great job of describing not just like what the different measurements were, but how to conduct yourself. And he would talk about how, you know, when you go to a doctor and the doctor asks you to take your pants off, right, it's not a sexual encounter, right? And the way they behave is important. And so when you measure people, you have to be clinical about it, right, to not make the other person uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I I accept as well. <laughs> you consent. All right. Well, Mike, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to one more time plug for everybody where they can find you? Oh, sure. Thank you. My podcast is called Broccoli and Ice Cream. A free episode comes out every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. And then a bonus premium episode comes out via Kickstarter Drip, so you can contribute for as little as a dollar or a dollar an episode. Uh, You get double uh, or more of the conversations. And then everything can be found via uh, Mike Kaplan online, M-Y-Q-K-A-P-L-A-N, my various albums and uh, videos and Twitter and Instagram and whatever the thing is in the future. Just put in <laughs> internet.com slash M-Y-Q Kaplan. Uh, that 
that don't actually do that literally that will not work <laughs> and look for you i imagine all over the place with the touring and the whatnot oh yeah if uh, if you're all over the place that i'll be there pretty soon so you're pretty much everywhere you're, you're sort of transcendental at this point right oh yeah i'm here with i'm in my home i'm in your home listener i'm in your ears i'm in your brain i'm everywhere that all of us are we didn't even get to consciousness expanding drugs i'll do another one. Oh yeah all right well thanks so much for joining us and thanks everybody for listening and we will catch you next week Thank you.